tonight, as Julianne said, um, I'm going to be teaching session two of Foundation Stones of Intercession, building the prayer movement by establishing a biblical understanding of night and day prayer. So tonight we're talking about the restoration of the Tabernacle of David, and it will be a continuation of session one. I'm going to be talking about um, a little bit more about the Tabernacle of David itself. There were some details that I did not give in the last session that I want to make sure that I add. Uh, and then we will go into a couple of the examples of when night and day prayer was restored in Israel. Um, so I will not be covering all of the times that night and day prayer was restored. The rest will have to be in the next session. So I am going to take my time through this topic. Um, I'm just realizing as I'm preparing notes that there's a lot to be said and a lot to be studied and I want to make sure we give time to it. Because really there's, there's two ways to approach it. I can either take a singular verse that says that night and day prayer or that you know, uh, you know, worship was restored according to the command of David or according to the order of David and just have that single verse say, hey, that you know, shows that night and day prayer was restored under this king and then move on. Or the other way to approach it is what I want to do and I want to dive a little bit deeper look at the context of the king and the kingdom under which night and day prayer was restored and see what we can gain from that text. What can we learn about God? What can we learn about the principles of how, of how God was restoring night and day prayer and what that led to? So I want to dive a little bit deeper than just taking a single verse and saying under king so-and-so night and day prayer was restored. So that's kind of the methodology. So the Tabernacle of David took place in 1050 BC, just to give you a, a date. So David established a tent in Jerusalem to house the Ark of the Covenant. There were 288 Levites who were established to sing songs before God's presence night and day. 288 Levites were established to sing before the Ark of the Covenant. Like that, that alone is, is such, a, such an amazing statement. 288 people set aside to give their life, their time, their energy to singing before God. So, and these were highly skilled singers who prophesied in song and they prophesied on their instruments. So... What I found interesting when I was looking at these specific verses, when you hear the phrase prophesy on your instruments, what does that sound like to you? To me, I think a charismatic phrase where we are interpreting scripture and coming up with this phrase, prophesy on your instruments. That's what I was thinking when I was reading through these scriptures. But what I saw in reality was that the scriptures themselves are essentially using that exact phrase. So this idea of prophesying on the instruments is, is not a new charismatic term that the House of Prayer uses to talk about spontaneous worship. This is an ancient reality where God anointed real people 
with skill on their instruments for the purpose of playing their instruments before God, and it was actually considered prophesying on their instruments. So 1 Chronicles 25.1 says, Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals, and the number of those who performed their service. So here we have three different family lines, Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, and various individuals in those family lines were anointed to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. So that's the exact phrase. This is an ancient phrase, an ancient reality. This concept that God can release his anointing upon those who play instruments is not a new phenomenon. So in verse 2, it says, Of the, of the sons of Asaph, he gives their names, uh, which I won't try to pronounce. The sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. So this is another, obviously, amazing reality that the king himself was directing and giving a charge to those who were anointed on their instruments to, yes, play, prophesy, declare the, the glory of God in this nation. Right? That, that's, that's what we want from our leadership. Local, state, national. We want our leadership to say, anointed singers and musicians, yes, play, prophesy, sing, declare the glory of God. So verse 3, of Jeduthun, the sons of Jeduthun, gives the names, six, under the direction of their father, Jeduthun, with the harp, who prophesied, with the harp, who prophesied in giving thanks and praising the Lord. Again, this reality is, is, is released over and over again, this concept of prophesying with instruments. And then verse 4 through 6, of, of Heman, the sons of Heman, gives their names. Verse 5, All of these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, to exalt him according to the words of God. For God gave fourteen sons and three daughters to Heman. All of these were under the direction of their father to sing in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres for the service of the house of God. So an entire family... That's a, that's a lot of kids, but an entire family was trained and anointed to prophesy on their instruments. And it was under the blessing of the king. So 1 Chronicles 25, 7. Their number who are trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. So 288 individuals, both skillful and anointed, to prophesy. So you think about what produces favor in a land, what attracts the presence of God, what attracts the favor of God, the protection of God over a people and a kingdom. This is part of it, for sure. This reality of the anointed singers and musicians training one generation to another, the family lines being trained to then prophesy on the instruments and declare the greatness of God over the land. 
So there were eventually 4,000 musicians appointed to worship the Lord. So there was this culture, again, of families, multiple people in the same family, coming under, stewarding, and passing on that anointing for singing and for worship and for prophesying through both singing and worship on their instruments. So 1 Chronicles 23, 1-6. Now when David reached an old age, he said to his son Solomon, king over Israel, and he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with their priests and the Levites. The Levites were numbered from 30 years old and upward. Their number by census of men was 38,000. Of these, 24,000 were to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. That's a lot of staff. 6,000 were officers and judges. Let's pause for a second. We need to pray for the Lord's anointed officers and judges in our land. Right? 6,000 were appointed. These were appointed out of the place of righteousness. They were appointed from families of righteousness to be judges over the land concerning real issues between human beings. So they were to judge between issues of theft, between issues of infidelity, between other issues, between people. They were the ones releasing the judgment. They were the judges. In our case, they would be the, again, the Supreme Court judges, the, the, the state judges. So we can and should be praying for righteous officers and judges to be raised up in our land. Verse 5, 4,000 were gatekeepers. And 4,000 4, were praising the Lord with the instruments which David made for giving praise. David added them into divisions according to the sons of Levi. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So, 4,000 people ultimately were appointed and provided for for this perpetual worship and praise before the ark. So, this, this, is, what, this is what took place under the vision and the leadership of David and then his son Solomon. This was, what, this was what David was wanting. Not just a few people holding the line, doing worship and prayer, but he was wanting hundreds and yea, thousands of individuals proclaiming the glory of God over the nation. So Solomon, 1010 B.C. So Solomon started building the temple in the fourth year of his reign. And you can see that in 1 Kings 6.1. So this was the merging of the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David. So I said this a couple weeks ago. Under Solomon, we have the slaughtering of animals, the tabernacle of Moses, we have that, you know, the, the, it was day, it was morning and evening sacrifices, the burning of incense, the fire on the altar that would never go out, that was all tabernacle of Moses. That reality plus 
David's reality of gathering anointed singers and musicians to sing and proclaim the, the nature and, the, and the, the character of God before his presence, both of those were being merged on one physical location. With David, you had the tabernacle of David and the tabernacle of Moses in two different cities operating simultaneously, but they were not combined. Solomon was building a physical temple instead of a tent. He was building a physical temple and merging the two together. So it took seven years for the temple to be completed. So seven years for the physical structure of the temple to be completed. That requires a lot of vision and dedication. So Solomon was likely under the age of 20 when he became king. That's crazy, right? I mean, in the Old Testament, we see that a lot. We see young, young kings, even the age of 7 and, and 10 and 11, and these young, young kings. Solomon was under the age of 20. So David, having zeal for building the house of God, spent his latter years amassing the raw materials and money needed for the project. So to me, this is another glimpse into the reality that God is multi-generational. Because what we have is David, he's getting older. David wanted to build God a, a, a physical temple, Right? And the prophet said no. So now David is getting older, and he chooses to dedicate his latter years into preparing for a temple that God said he could not build. So that, again, is, it's multi-generational, where God is choosing to take multiple generations to do what, if it was our choice, we would have them do it as quick as possible. So David knew that he would die before the temple was built, but he still spent his, he still valued it enough to pour out his wealth and strength to prepare for it. So 1 Chronicles 22.5, David said, my son Solomon is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore, now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. So on the one hand, we have this young Solomon, who David's, David's declaration about Solomon, public declaration, right? We, 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 all love, we, we all would love this. That boy is young and inexperienced. So on the one hand, and yet he is to inherit the kingdom. And he is the one that God chose to build the temple. It was not David with all of his experience. It was Solomon with his lack of experience. So on the one hand, we have that. On the other hand, we have the much older and wiser King David... Seeing Solomon's lack of inexperience, and instead of hesitating to make the transition, 
There's a focused effort in preparing the way for Solomon's success. So catch that. David saw Solomon's inexperience. David has options. David can either see the inexperience, call it out in a negative way, and say, you're not ready, I'm not going to give it to you. Or he can see the inexperience, say, you're appointed by God to do this. So in light of your inexperience, I will make every effort with all of my wealth, all of my skill, I will pour it out as an offering to the next generation to pave the way for your success. Which is what David did. He took all of his wealth, all of his experience, all of his connections, like with the king of Tyre, and, and, uh, which you'll, you, uh, you'll see later. So he took all of these connections and wealth and experience and poured it out to have stones already being cut, timber already being cut, relational connections already being made to pave the way for Solomon's success. So this is an example of a quality leadership transition. David also charged Israel's other leaders to support Solomon and help him grow into his new role. So for, uh, page 3, 1 Chronicles twenty-two fourteen 14, says, Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, one million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you, and you may also add to them. So a talent is estimated to potentially be about 75 pounds. So 100,000 talents of gold, each weighing 75 pounds. A million talents of silver. So 75 million pounds of silver. I mean, this is just off the charts. So this is the wealth that David had both amassed and was strategically using to prepare for the building of the temple. So Solomon's temple was built with the labor of over 150,000 men. They, they didn't have the modern building apparatuses that we have. It took seven years and 150,000 men. So this is not including the labor of cutting down the cedar, the cypress, the algum timber from Lebanon, which came from Huram, the king of Tyre. So these 150,000 men were foreigners that were not removed from the land when Israel came to possess the land of their inheritance. So essentially, these 150,000 people were forced laborers allowed to live in the land in exchange for their manual labor. So if you read all the verses surrounding the building of the temple, you'll see that these laborers worked for one month And then they went back home for two months. And then they would work again for one month. And they went back home for two months. So at first glance, you see this reality that the temple was built 
with the forced labor of 150,000 people. And at, at first you're like, what? It was built with slave labor? And then you, you know, in your mind, you connect it with Egypt and all the, the horrible slave labor that took place there. But it was, in my understanding, it was completely different. So in Egypt, they were overworked. They were working six to seven days a week. I don't, I don't remember if it was six or seven. But they were constantly working, building things for Pharaoh. Here, the forced laborers worked one month and went home for two. That's not a bad gig. So I, I, just, I, I wanted to make that point so that we understand that even this reality of the Lord causing those who should have been displaced from the land of Israel and who weren't through military conquest, they were put uh, to work for building the temple. So 2 Chronicles 2, 17 uh, through verse uh, uh, 3, 2. So Solomon numbered all the aliens who were in the land of Israel following the census which his father David had taken. 153,600 were found. He appointed 70,000 of them to carry loads and 80,000 to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 supervisors to make the people work. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build on the second day in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. So then after seven years of building, the temple was ready for dedication. So 2 Chronicles 5, 11 through 14 said, When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to division, all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jeduthun, and their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres, standing east of the altar with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpets and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and when they praised the Lord he, saying, He indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled, filled the house of God. So here I see a few different things. Number one, the priests sanctified themselves. So you had seven years of building, the physical preparation of the temple. And then before the dedication, the priests were sanctifying themselves. They were preparing their, th themselves for the holy task that they were called to. They came into unison with worship, with trumpets, with singing. And that's when the presence of God came in such a way that no one was able to enter. The glory of God was so present it filled the house. That's quite a long time of waiting, 
right? I mean, that's a lot of labor. That's a lot of money, a lot of labor, a lot of preparation. Seven years, David amassing wealth, preparing timber, preparing all of these things. And then suddenly, the glory comes to the temple. Second Chronicles 7, verse 1. Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice. The glory of the Lord filled the house. The priest could not enter into the house for the Lord of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, Truly, He is good. Truly, His loving kindness is everlasting. So the people were unified in declaring the goodness of God. In the midst of His manifest power and presence and glory, the people could do nothing but fall on their face and say and declare that God is good. Second Chronicles 7, 6. The priests stood at their posts, and the Levites also, with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever He gave, pra- whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests... On the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. So this hadn't been done before. So Israel had had, you know, large gatherings of the physical slaughtering of animals, but they had not had this level of worship with instruments and singing and music and trumpets, this had not, this was totally other than what had taken place in Israel's history. Second Chronicles 8.14 Now according to the ordinance of his father David, he appointed the divisions of the priests for their service and the Levites for their duties of praise and ministering before the priests according to the daily rule, the gatekeepers by their divisions at every gate, for David the man of God had so commanded. So this is the singular verse that you'll often hear referenced related to night and day worship being established under Solomon's rule is this, this concept that according to what David had commanded, they gathered the, the, uh, the Levites and those who administered to the Lord through praise. So after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel was divided. So we all know what happened to Solomon in the latter years of his life, Yes. So Solomon, with all of his wisdom, apparently did not have wisdom or walk in wisdom as he got older. He amassed wives to the level of a thousand between wives and concubines. He did did basically everything the Lord said not to do. 
in his latter years. And because of the pull of that many women coming from foreign nations, worshiping false gods, each of those women were pulling on Solomon's heart and mind to worship the gods of other nations, and he did. So this was the end of the unified Israel. Israel was never again fully unified. So 10 of the 12 tribes joined together, forming the northern kingdom. Two tribes stayed in the, in the south and kept Jerusalem as their capital. The northern tribes never again served the Lord, while the southern kingdom went through seasons of backsliding and seasons of revival. So all of the accounts of night and day worship being restored happened in the southern kingdom. So Joash, the king, and Jehoiada, the chief priest, in 853 B.C. So this is the first official restoration of the tabernacle of David that happened in the southern kingdom. So as a child, Joash was in the crosshairs of a slaughter of a bloodline due to the lust for power of Athaliah, who was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So there was actually a righteous king who, for reasons that I don't understand, thought it was a good idea to try to unite the northern and the southern kingdoms through having Jezebel's daughter, you know, the wicked Jezebel, Jezebel's wicked daughter, Mary, his son. Righteous king made this fatal mistake. So through marriage, she gained access to the southern kingdom. And by slaughtering all of her grandchildren, she was able to take the throne for herself. Talk about lusting for power. That you would slaughter all of your grandchildren, basically all of the next-in-line heirs, so that she could gain the throne and keep it. She was the most prominent worshiper of Baal in Judah's history. So Joash was saved from the slaughter at the age of one and kept hidden in the house of the Lord for six years before Jehoiada the priest established him as the rightful king of Judah at age seven. So Joash was hidden in the temple from age one to age seven. I mean, you see my little kids running around in here. How do you hide a child in a temple for six years? I can only assume that Athaliah was so wicked she never stepped foot in the temple. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's conjecture. So 2 Chronicles 24, 1 through 2. Joash was seven years old when he became king. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days 
of Jehoiada the priest. Interesting phrase there. Did you catch it? Did you catch what I just read? Y'all paying attention? Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of who? Not all the days of Joash. All the days of Jehoiada, Jehoiada, however you pronounce that name, the priest. So, if you look closely at the whole story, you'll see that Jehoiada the priest was more righteous than Joash and stayed faithful his whole life, while Joash forsook the Lord once Jehoiada died. So Jehoiada the chief priest initiated the restoration of both the sacrificial system and perpetual worship in the temple of Solomon as a corporate act of returning to the Lord. So 2 Chronicles 23, 16-19 says, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people that, and the king that they, that they would be the Lord's people. So again, this was not Joash initiating this. This was Jehoiada. And all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. They broke in pieces his altars and his images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Moreover, Jehoiada placed the officers of the house of the Lord under the authority of the Levitical priests, whom David had assigned over the house of the Lord, to offer the burnt offerings of the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David. So he's restoring both. He restored the sacrificial system according to Moses, and he restored the rejoicing and the singing according to David. He stationed gatekeepers of the house of the Lord so that no one would enter who was in any way unclean. So every generation faces this question of whether or not they will stay the course and serve the Lord after key righteous leaders pass away. So here we had a righteous man, not the king, initiating in reestablishing night and day worship and reestablishing the system of Moses. But as soon as he died, the king completely turned around and went another way. So passing the torch from one generation to the next has proven to be one of the most difficult things to do, no matter the generation or culture. Y'all agree with me on that? Passing the torch. We can have men that God say are righteous through and through. That until death, they did everything that God told them to do. And we have other people that can kind of generally maintain righteousness underneath that covering. And then the older generation, the righteous ones die, and the younger generation throws off restraint and shows that they're capable of pursuing things that are not the Lord. So 2 Chronicles 24, 17 through 20. After the death of Jehoiada, 
The officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for, their, for this, their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. That is quite the indictment. So the Spirit of God comes upon the son of the righteous priest who had passed away. The Spirit of God falls upon his son to call the nation back to God. He also is sending prophets to release the word of the Lord to call the nation back to himself. All the while, the nation is falling apart. And they're not prospering because they're pursuing wickedness. So this is the wrestle of the generations. On the one hand, we have the restoration of night and day worship. And on the other hand, we have the wickedness of the human heart trying to push it back into darkness. Trying to plunge the nation back into darkness. And there's, so much, there's such a lack of clarity on the people that they can't see that the pursuit of wickedness and the falling apart of the nation are connected. The wicked kings continue to pursue wickedness. The nation plunges deeper into darkness and they don't understand the connection. So Hezekiah in 726 B.C., so if you, if you look at the dates and notice, in between these, there's years of wickedness. There's years of night and day worship not being present, not being blessed by the king. So Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was a wicked king who physically locked up the temple, shut down the worship and the sacrificial system, and greatly promoted the worship of false gods throughout all of Judah. How would you like that for a dad? So Ahaz, a wicked king, locking the temple, promoting the worship of false gods all throughout the land. And Judah was conquered by Syria during this time of the rebellion. So Hezekiah was the son once Hezekiah became king, he worked to undo all of the wicked works of his father and to restore the worship of God throughout the land as soon as he became king. So 2 Chronicles 29, 1-12. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. So his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. So Zechariah, if, if, if I'm following this genealogy correct, if it's the same Zechariah, 
Zechariah was the son of Jehoiadiah, the righteous priest. So we have both wickedness and righteousness in his family line. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. This guy had the zeal of the Lord shut up in his bones. The moment he became king, he's like, I am immediately opening the doors of the house of the Lord. I am immediately repairing it. He brought in the priests and the Levites. He gathered them into the square on the east. He said to them, listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now. Consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God and have forsaken Him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and He has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel." that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not neglect now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to minister to him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. Then the Levites arose. So it takes the anointing of God to have clarity and see the connection between the pursuit of wickedness and the collapse of a nation. As believers, we think that it's like logical, it's so clear that you forsake God, you pursue wickedness, and bad things happen. But looking at the Old Testament and looking at the testimony of these various kings and, 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 and uh, foreign nations coming against Israel and succeeding, you see very clearly that it's not that clear. It's actually not clear to those who are wicked. They see no connection. But then you have someone righteous rise up, like Hezekiah. It says it was in his heart to make a covenant with the Lord. That's one of the most glorious things that could ever be said about you. It is in your heart to make a covenant with the Lord. So it was in his heart and he immediately recognized these awful things have happened to this nation because we have forsaken the Lord. And he began to steer the ship back to the Lord. So it's amazing what passion and dedication can accomplish, especially if it's in alignment with the purposes of God. Hezekiah was incredibly motivated to have the worship of God restored in the land. 
So 2 Chronicles 29 17. They began the consecration on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days, finished on the sixteenth day of the first month. So there, there was a passion and a drive to do this as quick as possible. Let's consecrate ourselves, let's consecrate the house, and let's get back in right standing with God. So Hezekiah restored the sacrificial system and night and day worship at the same time. So 2 Chronicles 29, 25-30. Then he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the command of David. So that's that familiar phrase. That night and day worship according to what David had prescribed was being restored. And of God the king, and Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David, the priests with their trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer burnt offerings on the altar. When the burnt offerings began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David. So it couldn't be clear. Both the sacrificial system and the live worship were being restored at the same time. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, the trumpet sounded, all continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. And moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. We need some righteous leaders who will order the church to rise up and worship. Right? I mean, can't get better than that. Direct order from the highest level of authority in the land. Sing, prophesy, worship. So the restoration of night and day worship came suddenly, but the sudden work also needed sudden consecration and sudden participation from the Levites, the priests, and the people. So catch that for a second. This this restoration came about suddenly, but the suddenly requires sudden consecration and sudden buy-in from the people to participate. So verse 36 says that God had prepared this restoration for the people. In dark days, under the curse of sin and wicked leadership, God was preparing. He was preparing for revival and the restoration of night and day worship. The suddenly of God and the long-term preparation are not in opposition. So 2 Chronicles 29, 34-36. But the priests were too few. Uh-oh. The suddenly of God came and the priests were too few. That's not good. So that they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was completed. And until the other priests had consecrated themselves. For the Levites were more 
conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. Interesting. The Levites were quicker to consecrate themselves than the priests. The priests actually had superiority over the Levites as far as the hierarchy. You had the high priest, the priests, then the Levites. The Levites were those generally working in the temple complex, but they were not the ones physically doing the sacrifices. So there were also many burnt offerings with the fat and the peace offerings and with the libations for the burnt offerings. Thus the service of the house of the Lord was established again. That's a glorious phrase. The service of the house of the Lord was established again. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people. Amazing phrase. God had prepared this for the people because the thing came about suddenly. So we had these two things going on at the same time. God in the background preparing. What is he preparing for? He's preparing for something to come about suddenly. Again, look at the context. We have an unrighteous king promoting wickedness in the land. His son then rises up to replace him, age 25, full of the zeal of the Lord, understands the connection between pursuing wickedness and judgment. So he becomes king. The moment he becomes king, he's like, fling wide the doors of the church. We're going we're to start worship again. Gather the priests. We're going to command them to consecrate themselves, consecrate the temple, and we are going to start worship again. So it came about suddenly, but at the same time, God was preparing it for the people. That just struck me when I was looking at this. It's like, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you prepare for righteousness to spring forth out of the ground He's preparing, right, for salvation to spring forth out of the ground in seasons of darkness. So God is not handcuffed. He's not stuck. He's not unable to move on his throne while wicked kings are in the earth promoting wickedness. God is in the background preparing for a suddenly. He's preparing to do what he wants to do with and through the people. So Hezekiah understood the connection between wickedness and judgment and righteousness in the favor of the Lord. He saw firsthand his father's wicked acts and what they led to. His father pursued every wicked thing his heart could come up with, and yet the nation fell apart and was not protected from foreign armies. If an unrestrained pursuit of sin is so great... Why does it always lead to sorrow and destruction? Hezekiah understood God's nature and character and was therefore able to yield to God's ways and serve Him. So 2 Chronicles 37-9 through 9, Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that He made them a horror as you see. Now do not stiffen your necks like your fathers, but yield to the Lord and enter His sanctuary, which He has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, that His burning anger may turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, 
Your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So this was his exhortation to the people. Yield to the Lord and enter his sanctuary. Yield to the Lord and serve him forever. So now, 2 Chronicles 30, 26 through 31, 2, we're going to see that celebrating the restoration of night and day worship, it was proven to be from the heart as far as the people at large because of what they did. So it's easy to join a party and celebrate, right? It's easy to show up at a revival meeting or whatever, enter into the dancing and the singing. Easy to celebrate, but the rubber meets the road when you go back home and you destroy the things of sin. So 2 Chronicles 30, verse 26. There was a great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David. Then the Levitical priests arose and blessed the people. Their voice was heard. Their prayer came to his holy dwelling place to heaven. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, broke the pillars in pieces, cut down the ashram, and pulled down the high places and the altars throughout all Judah and Benjamin, as well as in Ephraim and Manasseh, until they had destroyed them all. That is easily just as glorious as joining together in corporate worship. They fleshed out their worship in a way that perhaps means more to the Lord than just dancing and singing. They fleshed out their commitment to the Lord by going throughout the land, tearing down the high places, the pillars, the ashram, all these instruments of, of, of wickedness, they tore them down. Then all the sons of Israel returned to their cities, each to his possession, and Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites by their division, each according to his service, both the priests and the Levites, for burnt offerings and for peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. So again, it's mentioning both the sacrificial system and the live worship. They were both being restored. So long-term spiritual health for the nation and the people required a long-term commitment of devotion to God from the spiritual leaders of the people, and this required funding. So 2 Chronicles 31, 4 through 5, he commanded the people who lived in Jerusalem to give the portion due to the priests and the Levites, that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. As soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, new wine, oil, honey, and all of the produce of the field. And they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. So in order for this restoration to be sustained, right? I mean, again, it's, it's easy to gather together 
encountered the presence of the Lord, the rubber meets the road when they went throughout the land, destroyed the articles of wickedness, the high places, the places they were sacrificing to idols. They destroyed that. And then in order to sustain the actual perpetual worship of God, they had to each contribute financially so that the Levites and the priests could actually do their job long term. And, and it says that they, that they gave abundantly. So what do you think happens next? I mean, like this is a massive crescendo. I, I mean, it, it, it says like the, the restoration of worship was so great that it had never been seen or experienced like this since Solomon. Everyone's all in. Like, they didn't just destroy the high places. I mean, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see some interesting things happen. You'll see that God says there was a righteous king, but he didn't tear down the high places. Or there was a righteous king, but the incense was still being offered to false gods. There was a righteous king, but. There was a righteous king, but. So here, we have something completely different. It says they tore down all of these all of these places of, of, of worshiping of idols, and they tore it down in Judah, in Ephraim, in Manasseh, in, in Benjamin. I mean, they, they went everywhere. They went everywhere they could, and they tore it all down. And then they gave financially, everyone in Jerusalem, they all gave to financially support the sustaining of night and day worship in their city. So after this crescendo of the restoration of night and day worship, what happens next? Second uh, Chronicles 32, 1. It says, After these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah, besieged the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. After the acts of faithfulness, what do we have? An unrighteous king rising up to say, I want to take the land. I want to steal for myself the wealth. So after this mounting crisis, both Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah turned to prayer to seek for God's deliverance. This is the most important thing any leader can do. When trouble comes, we are to turn our faces to the Lord and cry out for help. So you'd, you'd hope that the restoration of night and day prayer would lead to a happily ever after. And Israel was forever blessed for generations. But immediately, immediately after this glorious revival and restoration, we have a foreign army coming to invade. And there's not time in this teaching, because as I was making notes, I'm like, oh, all right, this needs to be more than one session. So the next time, you will see this pattern raise its head again. And, and I'll remind you, but this pattern is going to raise its head again with the restoration and then the enemy roaring its head. So 2 Chronicles 32.20, King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. The Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander and officer in the camp of the kings of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. When he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So that 
is a proper response and a proper outcome. So in 2 Kings 19, 34, 34 gives a little more detail. For, I, for This is the Lord saying, I, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. This was undoubtedly second or equal to the Lord delivering Israel from Egypt. As far as the magnitude of the power of God being displayed. And when did it happen? It happened in the context of the people being restored to the worship of God. And then a righteous king being humble enough to turn immediately to the Lord when trouble, show, when trouble arrived at their door. And, and I remember as a young teenager, this verse probably stood out to me as far as Old Testament more than any other verse. This reality that God, the angel of the Lord, killed 185,000 overnight. Just a sovereign, sudden act of God. That so struck me as a young teenager. And I never forgot that story. And here we see the context of that story. The context, the restoration of night and day prayer. The enemy saying, oh no you don't. You're not going to worship God. I'm going to come and take your wealth. And then a righteous king saying, oh Lord, it's only by your mercy that we're going to survive this. And God says, okay, you serve me and I got your back. So there is session two of many. Lord, we thank you, God, for the restoration of night and day worship. God, in our own city, in our own land, in our own nation, in this generation, God, throughout the earth, Father, we are seeking you. Father, we turn our face to you in light of COVID-19. God, we seek you, God, and we say, Lord, that through you, we can not only survive, but prevail. So, Lord, we pray, God, that you would do in our day what you did in Hezekiah's day, God, that you would destroy the works of the devil over our nation, that you would prevail, God, and show your favor and your might and your presence to this people. In Jesus' name, amen.